which she so well knows how to use, has been put in action towards me, he grumbled. But, never one to abandon a cause, the Prime Minister now turned his attention to that other aspect of the royalty question, the public life of the Prince of Wales. If the Queen was not prepared to play her royal role, then the heir apparent must be allowed to play his. Yet the exact nature of that role was difficult to define. What was an heir apparent supposed to do? In the past, the Prince of Wales' predecessors, those wayward Hanoverian princes, had invariably set themselves up in political opposition to the monarch. But this prince, for all his feelings of frustration, would never have done that so the problem remained unresolved. This dilemma, sighed the prince's private secretary, was inherent in the very nature of sovereignty. It has been the same thing with heirs apparent from time immemorial, and I fear will continue to be so as long as there are monarchies. He was right. To this day, the question has not been satisfactorily answered. There is no set-out role for me, The prince's great-great-grandson, Prince Charles, was to complain over a century later. It depends entirely on what I make of it. But Queen Victoria's heir was not allowed to make anything of it. The perennial difficulty was intensified by her own unyielding attitude. The prince was left with no worthwhile occupation, because this was precisely how his mother wanted it. This had not always been her attitude. During their eldest son's boyhood, Victoria and Albert, all aglow with good Coburg intentions, had decreed that Bertie, as he was known in the family, ought to be accustomed early to work with them, to have great confidence shown him, that he should be early instructed into the affairs of state. Their admirable resolve had been short-lived in spite of, or rather because of, a system of educational force-feeding. Bertie had never matched up to their exacting standards. He had emerged from these years of intensive study as an amiable but far from intelligent young man. Of Prince Albert's earnestness, industriousness, and high-mindedness, he showed no trace. He lived the disapproving queen would point out, purely for pleasure. Not even when his father had died did his mother revise her poor opinion of Bertie's abilities. In any case, the broken-hearted widow was determined that no one, and certainly not her backward heir, should play the political role that her adored angelic husband had once done. Not only did she consider her son to be lacking in intellect, but she found him irresponsible, immature, and indiscreet. The queen would neither confide in him nor consult him. The prince must see nothing, she warned her ministers, of a confidential nature. When one prime minister asked if the heir might be allowed to know anything of importance that took place in the cabinet, Her answer was a firm no. That would be quite improper. The prince, 
had no right, she would announce blandly, to meddle. Nor would she dream of allowing him to represent her in public. Properly speaking, no one can represent the sovereign but her, she once informed a home secretary. Her Majesty thinks it would be most undesirable to constitute the heir to the crown a general representative of herself, and particularly to bring him forward too frequently before the people. This would necessarily place the Prince of Wales in a position of competing, as it were, for popularity with the Queen. Nothing should be more carefully avoided. In short, it was a hopeless situation. Denied the opportunity either of working with his mother in private or representing her in public, the prince was obliged to lead an aimless existence. Yet the queen would cite that...